Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Amen. Now, the reason why I've read you the scripture is because over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about this spiritual armor and weaponry that all believers should have available to them in this crazy spiritual battlefield that is the world we live in. The aim of this series is to demystify and make the armor and weapons that God has provided for us simple to understand and, quite frankly, easier to use. I'm Jaden, and I'm going to be your guide as we equip ourselves for the coming victory. Welcome to God's Armory. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reconnect. You are here on the official Shincheonji English podcast. My name is Jaden. It's such a pleasure to have you here. We've been going through an exciting series recently based on Ephesians 6, all the weapons and armor that God describes as us needing to have to win this spiritual battle. If you've been listening to the past few episodes, then essentially you've just been hearing this over and over. There's no need for me to recap this. But if you haven't, then I recommend going back a few episodes and having a listen to that as we get into another one of the weapons that God has given us. And so I'd like to bring you back to an idea that we actually first touched on in the first episode of our God's Armory series, which was maybe you're familiar with events such as Comic-Con or just generally people who like to gather and do live action role playing where they kind of dress up in medieval armor or whatever they want and they actually try and try and fight each other using these kind of fake props. You might be thinking, well, that's what nerds do. But actually, it's become a whole lot more popular. I think it's sort of being embraced now. The whole cosplay and role playing culture is now sort of being embraced a lot more around the world. Anyway, the, the reason why I brought this up is because any live action role player or cosplayer, if they were put into a real battle situation using their costume armor that they either bought or created, it would do nothing to protect them. As fun as it might be to embody the image of the, the character they're imitating, they're just clothes. In the end, they're clothes, they're costumes. It's not actual armor that's going to protect them from anything. 
So what spiritual point is there from this? Well, because for us as believers who know that the Bible tells us that there is a very real but unseen spiritual war going on around us, there is a very real danger that we might, by using our God-given creativity and imagination, end up cosplaying spiritual armor for ourselves. We just created our own, like our own projection of fake armor so that we think that we're protected, but in reality, we're not. So now we are going to look at this idea a bit more closely over these last few episodes of this series, starting today as we examine the sword of the spirit, as well as the flaming arrows of the enemy. But before we get there, cast your mind back to the items we've covered so far. Can you remember them? (laughs) Can you recite them without going through Ephesians 6 or cheating? The first one was wearing the belt of truth. Are you really wearing the belt of truth fasted securely around your waist? Or is there a possibility that it makes you feel good to say that you're wearing it? And therefore, you content yourself with that feeling rather than the certainty of knowing that you actually are. How about the breastplate of righteousness? And while I'm asking these questions as if it's to you, <laughs> I, I want you to know that actually I, I feel like I'm more asking myself more than anyone. Right? These are questions that, are, that aren't from me to you. They're from us to us, <laughs> me to myself, you to you. Right? Are we really wearing this breastplate or having read the passage? Do we just simply imagine that by naming and claiming it that we are wearing it? Our imaginations are very powerful. We may feel empowered and secure when we imagine ourselves standing clothed in holy and radiant armor. But how is that different from a spiritual cosplay? As believers, surely we need more certainty than that, right? The stakes are very high. What was next? The readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Are we equipped that on our feet? Are we ready to move like Abraham did when the voice of the true but as yet unknown to him God spoke to him. If God came and spoke to you now, please go move somewhere else. Would you be able to do that? That's the kind of readiness that Abraham had. And speaking about Abraham, the shield of faith. Is your faith able to extinguish the flaming darts or the flaming arrows of the evil one? As I said, we'll talk about more of these today. But really, if your faith is not able to do that, then it is not much of a shield, is it? In a very sobering passage in Matthew 7, Jesus suggests that even those who believe with all sincerity that they should be allowed into his kingdom, in other words, they think that they are saved, they might not actually be as secure as they think. Pretty scary. Let's go look there. Matthew 7 verse 21 to 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What a scary thought, right? Jesus said there are people who think that they are doing things right in in the view of Jesus. Actually, Jesus is saying, no, I never knew you. (laughs) So how can we be sure? How can we be sure that we are truly equipped with what God is wanting us to be equipped with? Like the helmet of salvation. 
Are you certain that it is protecting your head until you are able to receive your crown of life when the battle is won? To be honest, these are loaded questions. And I'm asking these questions with an ulterior motive. I know from my own experience that without fully understanding the prophecies of the New Testament, one cannot really be sure about an answer to any of these questions. It would be like asking a person living before they heard about Noah and his ark whether they were certain that they were safe. Going and ask someone in Noah's time saying, are you safe from the flood that's going to happen? Right? What are you talking about? Any of these people would have said, yes, of course I'm safe. That's what it tells us in Matthew 24, verse 37 to 39. This is what it says. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Amen. Bear in mind, this, these are Jesus' words here. We need to be honest with ourselves. Do we really believe this? The people before the time of Noah had no reason from their spiritual tradition to suspect that they were not in good standing with God. They were not running around trying to be wicked and sinful. They were just being themselves. Eating, drinking, marrying, do those, do those sound like evil things to you? If you're guilty of eating or drinking in the past 24 hours, put your hand up. <laughs> But despite this, sadly, when Noah came along and when God spoke to Noah and told him to build that ark, when the people chose to ignore him and continue with their own ways, their spiritual parentage, their spiritual alliance was revealed and judgment followed. If Jesus is pointing out to us that the time when the New Testament prophecy will be fulfilled is similar to the days of Noah, well, shouldn't we be super sensitive about what kind of choice we would make in that situation. All this is to once again invite you, if you would like to know more or become more certain in your faith and in knowing that you really are equipped with the full armor of God, that you are ready to face whatever spiritual battles you may need to go through, please reach out to us through the link in our episode description. Come study with us. We have numerous one-on-one -on -one or group studies, both online, offline, around the world. This is free. There are, there's no charge for these groups, but that doesn't mean it's entirely without cost. It will require your, your effort and your attention and your time. Studying the Bible will challenge you and sometimes reveal where you have perhaps been a bit of a spiritual role player. <laughs> Believe me, I know. <laughs> I've been through that. But with all that, let me assure you that it is absolutely worth it. While we are talking about the sword of the spirit today, if you feel that you are ready to take the plunge and get better equipped to fend for yourself spiritually, please drop us a message. Okay, that was a slightly longer, more intense recap than I had originally planned. But anyway, I hope that you hear my heart in all of this. I suppose the seriousness of this topic is really hitting home with me because this episode is really all about weapons. So far, the, the list of armor given in Ephesians 6, verse 12 to 18, has mostly been focused on defensive ideas. You know, armor that we wear to protect ourselves from various things. But today, we're talking about weapons. These are offensive tools of our spiritual war. I keep wanting to reiterate that this is a spiritual war. 
I know we are living in incredibly divisive times, and often we find ourselves thinking of other people as our enemies. We quickly identify one another as good or bad, and then think of others who are in our group as being good. Other people who are not in our group, they are bad. This is what happens in politics, cultural groups, racial groups, religious groups. It's a horrible, shadowy aspect of human civilization, and it really is one that we shouldn't entertain or encourage. So let me, for the record, state again, our war is spiritual. Our enemies are not physical beings. They are spiritual beings. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against spirits, or you could say against words, because word is spirit. There is never, under any circumstance, a viable reason to think that God, at this point in the history of his work, as described in the Bible, would bless physical or psychological violence. I want this to be very clear. God is the creator of life. The word of God is light and life, according to John chapter 1. There is no biblically sound argument for working towards the destruction of life. We fight a spiritual battle, not a physical one. With that said, in today's episode, we are going to consider the two types of weapons mentioned in Ephesians 6, which are the swords and the arrows or the darts. We're going to look at how and why these physical weapons are used figuratively to describe spiritual weapons, what each of these are, and how to level up our own sword skills, our own swordsmanship, and use the armor to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. So let's jump right in. So, swords. (laughs) Swords are cool, right? We all love swords, right? Such a sort of iconic symbol, a sword. Whether you're a fan of the medieval broadsword, the single-handed short sword, the samurai katana, right? The, The sword seems to be a weapon that has uniquely captured and been romanticized in our collective imagination. I remember my cousin, (laughs) He used to collect swords, like Lord of the Rings swords, and he'd store them in his room, and I'd be little, I'd go into his room and be like, oh, no way, a a real sword? It just made my cousin that much cooler. (laughs) Anyway, back to the topic at hand. Swords are close-range, hand-to-hand style combat weapons, right? In stories, warriors who have a special sword, they see it as an extension of their own arm. This is important for our own concept of the sword of the spirit because as we'll see for each of us, the sword that God is equipping us with needs to be an integral part of who we are as believers. Just as we see the legendary King Arthur is nothing without his wonderful sword Excalibur. We without the sword of the spirit are also not much at all. The Bible mentions swords in a few different ways. Many episodes ago, we did an episode covering the four different types of content in the Bible. They are history, teachings, prophecy, and fulfillment. In that episode, we discussed how these four types of content are related and how we as believers should understand them. To review quickly, we should be able to discern the difference between these four because history should be understood as a record of God's work and his relationship with the people with whom he established his covenants with over time. This type of content is relatively easy to understand, and from it, we can take lessons about the kinds of things we should seek to avoid or emulate in our own lives of faith. The teachings or instructions are also pretty simple to understand. They're instructions for physical behavior, 
often with a kind of moral reasoning behind them. On the surface, these seem to change over the course of the different covenants that God makes with his people. They are not given by just any old person, but by God himself, through the person who speaks on his behalf to his people. At one time, this was Adam. At another time, it was Noah, then Moses, and then Jesus. (laughs) And so this brings us to prophecy. Prophecy is also something spoken by God through a person who speaks on his behalf. Prophecy is more complex to understand because it's written in figurative language. And it's written this way specifically to stop people from being able to understand it before it's fulfilled. This is something we can see recorded in Isaiah 29 and from what Jesus says in Matthew 13 as well. Once God brings about the fulfillment of what he's promised, this is then recorded by those who witnessed it and heard the testimony about it. This is similar to history. It's pretty easy to understand from our vantage point in history, but unlike normal history, which unfolds without any kind of prophecy pointing it out as a particularly important event, fulfillment is recorded in scripture so that we can be sure that God who promised things and fulfilled things in the past will also surely fulfill everything he has promised in our own spiritual age. Being able to correctly understand and discern between these four types of content in the Bible is vital to being able to use the sword of the Spirit effectively. Because as we're told in Ephesians 6 verse 17, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Let's go there and read it together. Ephesians 6 verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Amen. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise. We already know that God is spirit, something we read in John chapter 4, verse 24, right? We've read it many times and we've linked it with other scriptures too. We also know that the spirit and the word are one, as it says in John 1, verse 1, and John 6, verse 63. (laughs) I say these verses, if you're not familiar, I definitely recommend to go and read them, but we have read them several times in the past few episodes as well. These were the same verses we referred to as being the buckle of our belt of truth. So to see them spelled out so clearly here as also being part of the sword shouldn't be too surprising. In the book of Revelation, the record of a prophetic vision shown to Apostle John of Patmos, John sees Jesus in the spiritual world as a figure with a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Let's read Revelation 1 verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Amen. Later in chapter 2, Jesus instructs John to write and send letters to seven messengers, or angels at seven churches. The angels and the churches are a mystery, according to Jesus in Revelation 1 verse 20. So anybody claiming to understand this passage either doesn't believe Jesus' own words, that it's a mystery, (laughs) or has perhaps witnessed the fulfillment of it. So nevertheless, although the messengers to which the letters are addressed are a mystery, the one who is sending the letters is not. In Revelation 2 verse 12, Jesus identifies himself as the authority behind the letter. Let's read that. Revelation 2 verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Amen. So from these verses, we should understand that in the New Testament, 
that is our own time and place in biblical history, the word of God is with Jesus. He is the one with the two-edged sword. It was through his first coming that he brought us the revealed word of God because in the Old Testament, the promises of God concerning the coming of his Messiah and the creation of a new covenant were all sealed. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies and people were able to receive God's word, measure the fulfillment against the prophecies and decide for themselves whether they would believe and act on it or not. Choosing to believe in God's word is an act of war not only with the world of tradition and culture outside, but to an even a greater degree within ourselves. Let's take a look at what else the Bible has to say about this sword, which is both spirit and the word. Let's start with a short passage in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Amen. This verse is really important because it is connected directly to the kind of war we are fighting. As I explained earlier, this is a spiritual war and we fight it mainly within ourselves. To understand this idea, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 to 5. For though we live in the world, We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. So it is clear that we are not fighting in the same way the physical world might recognize as fighting. Our fight is spiritual, and it is primarily fought within each one of us. This is why the Word of God is our primary weapon in this war. To the degree that each of us knows and understands the Word, that is the degree to which each of us will be able to demolish the strongholds, arguments, and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God within ourselves. Only once we have overcome those things within ourselves are we really able to help anybody else overcome within themselves, right? We're not able to take captive the thoughts of others. We only have power over our own thoughts. And the Bible is teaching us that by knowing how to use the Word of God effectively, we will be able to judge our own hearts and our own thoughts clearly. This is what it means when it says, For the Word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Again, this should not come as a surprise because we've also spoken at great length about how the Word of God is like a mirror that helps us see ourselves, specifically things within ourselves that we may need to correct. This is what it says in James 1 verse 22 to 25. I'll read it for us. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard but doing it, 
they will be blessed in what they do. Amen. So when we understand the Word of God fully and use it as a mirror for ourselves, we will be able to see which parts of ourselves match the image and likeness of God and which parts are perhaps things that we struggle to overcome or change about ourselves. Those stubborn areas are the strongholds within us. They are often defended by the most wonderfully tricky rationalizations and tricks of the imagination that really need to be worked out with patience and grace, not only from others, but from ourselves too. The war we fight is against these places within ourselves to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians. In doing so, we are being born again, spiritually baptized, washed, (laughs) all through the word which is described as living water in John chapter 4. We do not have time to read the passage now, and it is somewhat outside the scope of this episode, but I encourage you to go have a look at it when you can. So we've covered a lot about the sword of the Spirit already, which is the Word of God. We've seen that in Ephesians 6, just like throughout the whole scripture, the Word and the Spirit of God are actually the same things. The fact that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God is again made clear through Hebrews 4 verse 12, which also tells us how we can put it practical use in our lives. It can be used to separate activities of the soul, that is our mind and inner life, which includes things like our imaginations and the rationalizations we make for the parts of ourselves that we feel are perhaps not in line with God's words. These parts of ourselves are the strongholds that we defend by means of arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We should use the sword of the spirit that is the word of God, to dismantle them, pull them down by writing God's word on our hearts in their place. We can also see that the word and the spirit of God are both with Jesus and available through him. This is a fact demonstrated both through the gospels and the vision recorded in Revelation. We already read in Revelation that there are the verses talking about Jesus having a sword coming out of his mouth. Some other verses I'd like to leave you with regarding this point. John 1 verse 1 to 5. John 17 verse 8. 1 John 1 verse 1. For the sake of time, I'm just going to mention these and trust that those of you who are really wanting to learn to use the sword of the Spirit effectively will go and look them up and, and read them for yourself. This means that in order to truly have the sword of the Spirit, we must know and understand the words Jesus gave us including the prophecies of the New Testament, like in Matthew 24 and 25. And the book of Revelation, which according to Revelation 1 verse 1, is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that should be us, right? What must soon take place? We have also seen that this sword, although we might occasionally be tempted to use it to try to overcome the spiritual darkness we perceive in others, is actually to be used inside ourselves, where we can fight the kind of war described in 2 Corinthians 10. We want to use it effectively by demolishing strongholds, arguments, pretensions, all these things that stand up against the knowledge of God, and we're going to take captive our thoughts, making them obedient to Christ. In doing these things, we are offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God, which is our true and proper worship. Through the proper use of the sword of the Spirit, which according to the book of James is also like a mirror, we no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Perhaps that sounds familiar to you. I recommend to go read Romans 12. With all these things in mind, we are ready to move on to the other kind of weapon mentioned in Ephesians 6, the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let's go back and read it just for clarity's sake. Ephesians 6 verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Amen. So, arrows. Arrows are ranged weapons. They are like swords in that they also have blades and they pierce us, but they are unlike swords in that they are shot through the air and travel over long distances. It is worth noting that these flaming arrows, and we will get to what they are in just a moment, should be extinguished with the shield of faith. Remember, our shield of faith is something that is grown by hearing and acting on the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is the word of revelation regarding the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Earlier, I mentioned a verse in John 17, which we should go and take a look at now. In that chapter, John records a prayer that Jesus prayed for all who believe his words. Let's go see what he says to set the scene and provide a bit of context. John 17 verse 1 says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. He goes on in verses 6 to 8 to say, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Amen. There is so much to unpack in this chapter that we will certainly have to come back to it when we discuss Ephesians 6 verse 18, the last part of our spiritual armor series, which will deal with prayer. For now, it is important to realize that the words that we receive from Jesus are not just his own words. They are the words of God, words that God sent him to give to us. People who received those words and who acted on them are the people who demonstrated their faith and whose faith is alive. They are just like those listed in Hebrews 11, which is a long list of people who had faith spanning the many covenants God had made with his people throughout the history of his work towards the restoration of his creation. In fact, those who followed Jesus and who were persecuted as a result can be included with those mentioned, although not by name, but they are included at the end of Hebrews 11 verses 35 to 40. In talking about those who received Jesus' words and believed they were from God and then acted on them, we must remember that at the time when Jesus was teaching and for a long while after he left, the early Christians were persecuted by both the traditional spiritual leaders of Israel and the Roman authorities that were occupying the area. And yet, despite the persecution, they persisted and held fast to what they had received from God. There is a great passage in the book of Acts that gives us insight into the way the traditional spiritual leaders of that time thought and taught about Jesus and his teachings. Let's go take a look. We're going to head to Acts 24. It's a lengthy passage, 
but let's read it all to provide context and get an idea of what is going on. The book of Acts is an example of the history type of content in the Bible. Let's read. Acts 24 verses 1 to 8. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Amen. There, in the accusations that the high priest Ananias brought against Paul, is the accusation of being the ringleader of the Nazarene sect. It is mentioned again later in the chapter, this time by Paul himself when he makes his defense. He says in verses 10 to 14, When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Amen. Paul recognizes these accusations and is very familiar with the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees because he used to be a Pharisee himself. We did a series covering the life and work of Paul earlier in this podcast. So if you want to find out more, please go check that out. The important thing to take away from this verse is that those who were believers at this time were living in a world in which the dominant spiritual tradition of their era rejected what they believed and viewed them as a sect. Who first decided that these believers were part of a sect? And upon what authority was such an accusation based? Very obviously, it was not based on a full and revealed understanding of the Word of God, right? The truth is, we don't know exactly where this teaching came from. We just know that it was adopted and disseminated widely throughout the world of Judaism at that time. And it led to the widespread persecution of early Christians. Like arrows flying through the air, words like this are able to immobilize or completely kill off the faith of those who are not fully equipped with the armor to protect themselves. People who heard the words taught by Jesus and the teachings that he was the leader of a Nazarene sect had to make a decision as to whether they would listen and believe or whether they would just write it off, whatever it was, because the said teachings were of a cult. Now, remember, words are spirit, right? But in the case of these words, whose source is unclear, we can be sure that these words are not the spirit of God. 
if the word of God that we have in our hearts and wield as an extension of ourselves is like a sword, then these words of judgment and accusations can be likened to arrows that fly through the air and pierce many to their hearts when they are not properly equipped with a shield of faith. I'm being brief here because we've already run out of time. But this is not the only place where we see words that are shot through the air, a kind of spiritual ranged attack likened to arrows. They appear again, among other places, in Revelation. If you want to know more about Revelation, please contact us. Study the Bible with us. You'll be able to know a lot more about Revelation and the figurative language that is used within Revelation. Let's be clear. You are hearing all this through a podcast on the internet. This is our attempt here at Shinshinji to send out arrows of God's word into the world in the hopes that some of you listening to this might be hit and want to find out more. At Shinshinji, we believe that the only authority of the truth is God's word. The history, the teachings, the prophecy, and the fulfillment. This is what you will learn in detail if you are prepared to give only your time to study. So to sum up the idea of the arrows, they are words shot out into the world, often from sources that we cannot clearly identify when we first hear or are hit by them. They are often things like rumors. Often these types of words can be deadly to our spiritual lives unless we are equipped with a shield of faith. And remember also, the only way to really pick up the shield of faith is to hear the full testimony of what has been fulfilled and use that testimony as compared to the prophecies to determine whether or not the person giving that testimony is really speaking the words of God or not. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 17. Do go read it when you have a moment. Okay, we've been talking for a long time (laughs) and it's a lot longer than I initially intended, but it's also really exciting and of the utmost importance. In the sword of the spirit and the flaming arrows mentioned in Ephesians 6, we can see how everything else is actually connected and why it is so important that we have all the other parts of our armor firmly in place. If you remember only one thing from this episode, please take this away with you. Both the flaming arrows of the evil one and the sword of the spirit are words. This is a spiritual battle and it is fought within our hearts. It is fought with words. The words we choose to store in our hearts become the spirit that is formed within us. And we can either be formed in the image and likeness of God through his word or the image and likeness of his adversary through words that oppose the knowledge of God. The good news is that we're not fighting this battle alone. And so although the stakes are high, we have help and grace on our side from God himself. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about the importance of prayer, something that's touched on in Ephesians 6 verse 18. But until then, if in listening to this episode, you have perhaps felt the words of God ringing true and would like to know more about the things we've been discussing today, please come study with us. Come learn how to use God's word responsibly. (laughs) Don't go into battle with a sword not knowing how to use it. You might even just hurt yourself or wound yourself that way. But like a responsible spiritual soldier who's mastered his equipment, please come and study with us and we can teach you how to wield that sword of the spirit. So thank you once again for joining me on this episode. I look forward to being with you again next time. My name is Jaden and you're here on the Reconnect Podcast.